So we're going to break down the teaching into uh, two different sections this morning. Um, first of all, it's good to be back with you. I enjoyed my time away. got to go fishing for a little bit, went up to Traverse City, um, did a few days of rest up there, and then I went up to the Upper Peninsula and did a little fishing up there. And I, I got back, and uh, Sunday night last week I was in Traverse City uh, for one more night, and I was going to come home on Memorial Day. And my son Derek calls me um, about 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, I guess it was, and said, hey, because uh, he was down here, he said, hey, Dad, um, we just had a storm go through. And I had no idea the magnitude of the storm that you guys lived through last Sunday night. Um, so I was thinking, well, it was just a, a rainstorm. And he said, well, the power is out. And he said, there's trees down all over the place. And so immediately I'm beginning to think about my basement and the crocs that are backing up. Because we have three crocs down there and some pumps in them and pumping water out. And uh, so I bolted for home. And uh, fortunately, Gary Post had a generator to loan me. And I got home and there's an inch and a half of water in the basement. And um, it's just continuing to pour in. You guys got so much rain in that storm. I can't believe it, how much came down. And so the power's out. And like many of you, I went a couple days without any juice at the house. And I began to realize how much I take electricity for granted. And, you know, if you lived through that this last week, you know exactly what I'm speaking of. There is such a great temptation to take this passage that we're about to look at and take it for granted like I did electricity. Because this passage, especially John 3.16 that we're about to look at, is so familiar to many of you. If you grew up in church, you memorized it as a child. You know it by heart. And it can be so tempting to let it lose its power. But it comes from the mouth of God Himself. So we have to be reminded, because we're tempted to take it for granted, we have to be reminded of what we're about to read, what we're going to look at. So I'm going to invite you to turn to your Bibles in John chapter 3. But before we get there, I want to do a quick review with you of where we've been over the last nine weeks. If you're new to New Hope in the last couple weeks, we're studying this book called The Gospel of John. We've entitled this series, The Portrait, because of what John 1.18 says. It says that no man has seen the Father... No man has seen God, but Jesus has explained him. So every time Jesus explains God, there's a new brushstroke on the canvas. He's painting a portrait for us of what God looks like. So let's go back to John 1.1. You're going to be able to follow along on the screen. You've got your notes right there. The first portion of your notes, especially the first 11 questions, fill in the blanks for you of what we've seen over the last nine weeks. So here's a couple brushstrokes for you very quickly. First one was in the beginning. So we see this creator God, John 1.1, says the exact same thing Genesis 1.1 does in the beginning, except the next portion says, was the Word. So in the beginning, we've got this architect who is known as the Word, Jesus, who's already in existence at the beginning of time. Jesus is not a created being. He is God. So we have God the Father, God the Son. So in the beginning, we've got the Word who's eternally pre-existence. So Jesus is not only your Redeemer, He's your Maker because Scripture says God created everything through the Son. And the next thing we saw was that in Him is life. So we've got in the beginning, we've got the Word, and in Him was life. We get these portraits beginning to emerge about what God looks like. 
So before anything else existed, before the galaxies were created, before any of the planets, before the universe existed, there was life. In him was life. And he gives us a word picture next. He says, this one who is the word who is from the beginning dwelt among us. What it's referring to is what we call the incarnation, that God moved in among us. And because that's so hard to comprehend, God gives us a word picture. He gives us a word picture by using this word dwelt. Is The word in, in Hebrew is skenu or skenu. And it means literally to live in a tent, like God moving in next door. So you look at the definition for skenu, it says to reside, meaning God moved into your neighborhood. He dwelt and lived right among us, like us. The next brushstroke we see is that he's full of grace and truth. What are the implications of this? If Jesus is the full expression of grace and the full expression of truth, he knows everything there is to know about what it takes to be saved. He's the expression of God's truth. So he's full of grace, full of truth. And so when he shows up on the scene, John the Baptist begins to talk about him. So chapter 1 laid out all this detail about the origins and how we got to where we're at, why this creator God came. And then John the Baptist begins to talk about him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, he's standing on the bank of the river and he sees Jesus walk by and he sends his disciples to Jesus by pointing to him and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. So everybody understands that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb because in the Hebrew language, they knew what it meant to be the sacrificial lamb. And then as we moved on to the next couple weeks, we began to see this inner relationship between Jesus and the disciples to the degree that Jesus was even confident enough as Peter's God to change Peter's name. You remember that one from John 1.42? First time he meets Peter, Peter's name is Cephas, and he changes his name. You should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. He changes his name to the rock because he wants to give Peter a new character, a new identity. And we discovered in that brushstroke that our God has the authority as our Father to change our direction. He can give us a new name, a new identity, leaving the past behind us. And so in Peter's case, he gives him a whole new identity by giving him a new name. Only your parent can do that. So we see these brushstrokes. And the next one was he meets these young men, one by the name of Nathaniel and another one by the name of Philip. And he says to him, I saw you under the fig tree before you even came into my presence. Remember that detail? This God who says, I see you and I know you. And he spoke specifically to Nathaniel and took him to the next level to help him understand, I'm your God and I understand you. And he began in the most simple terms to explain how he would reveal himself to this one called Nathaniel. For me, the, the very next brush stroke was one of the most significant ones because we see God as a communicator. This communicator God speaks directly to the level of understanding which we have. And you're going to see that powerfully today. In the case of Nathaniel and Philip, he spoke in the line of thinking they were accustomed to. Not heavenly, ethereal things that they couldn't understand, but humanly, earthly things to help root them. So he speaks directly to your capacity to understand. 
meaning there isn't anything in Scripture you aren't capable of understanding through the work of the Holy Spirit. God explains himself. And the next brushstroke we saw was God at a party. God showed up at a wedding. Jesus went to a wedding just for the sake of going to a wedding. Not because there was some trauma, not because there was a child that was sick, but just to be at this party environment. And in the midst of this party wedding environment, we see God's provision. So we see God the provider. And we discovered what Jesus created in that setting when he made wine was the best. God created the very best, and it was abundant. There was more than what they needed. It was overflowing. So we discovered with that brushstroke that God is concerned with your non-critical problems. He's concerned with your critical issues, but he's also concerned with your non-critical issues. You see these beautiful brushstrokes coming out of this imagery? We get a painting of what God looks like. The next thing we saw at the end of chapter 2 was Jesus going to the temple for the Passover. And the place where people worshipped God was defiled. So we've got God at the temple who's very concerned that we're in his presence in the right frame of mind. But because the temple was defiled with people selling sheep and oxen and goats, it was defiled and people couldn't walk with God the way they were intended to. We explored that from the time we were in the garden. God wants us to walk with him. So we see boldness in our God, boldness for purity and holiness. He wants us to be in a pure state of mind when we worship him. So let these things settle in, these 12 brushstrokes that you've seen so far. All these have happened in just two chapters. And we understand now why John said, Jesus explained God. And we've got a whole bunch of chapters more to go. So by the end of it, we should have this incredible portrait of what God the Father looks like. So we just need to let this settle in because John is very categorical in the way that he lays it out. Why? Because nothing like this has ever happened before. And we get the privilege of looking through the lenses of an eyewitness, somebody who actually lived and saw Jesus. So we're going to stop right here for just a minute. That's the first section. I told you we're going to break it down into two sections. What I want to do is take a minute and pray and ask God that we not treat John 3.16 as mundane or same old, same old, because that's a great temptation, but rather that God would give us new eyes to look at this passage because it is God speaking to you about what he's like. So would you join me? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you right now just asking for one thing, and that is that you would give us clarity in our understanding. Fill us, Father, with your wisdom and with your capacity to make what seems to be hard to understand easy to understand. But Father, I ask for this congregation, for every one of us in this auditorium, that we not look at this with eyes which take your word for granted. But rather, Father, give us fresh eyes. Through the power of your Spirit, Father, give us eyes that see and ears that hear. God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're in John chapter 3, you're right where I'm at. And we left off at verse 11 and 12 last time with Jesus talking to this attorney, a very accomplished Supreme Court justice, 
somebody who had achieved a lot in life, who came to Jesus at night and wanted to know more about Jesus, mostly because Jesus was a miracle worker. So he wanted to understand more about Jesus. And he came in and made this proclamation. Knock, knock, knock on the door. It's evening time. He finds Jesus. He sits down with him and he says, we know that you're a great man, that you're from God, because no one can do the things that you've done unless God's with him. So he makes this profession, but Jesus blows right past it and ignores it and starts dealing with the attorney's heart. He begins talking to the Supreme Court justice as though he made no statement whatsoever, but rather there's an issue in his heart and that he does not have a real relationship with God the Father. So that's where we pick up in verse 11. And from this point forward, there's no more two-way dialogue. It's strictly God speaking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus shuts his mouth. So read with me in verse 11. You'll see it up on the screen as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus has just told the most beautiful description of the new birth to this guy. Those verses leading up 1 through 11 were the description of how one is born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's struggling to understand. He's trying to put the pieces together, and Jesus is saying to him directly, you don't believe it. You not only don't accept our testimony, I underlined it for you in verse 12, you don't believe what I'm saying. You've come here to say that I'm the great man of God, that I'm the teacher sent from God, and when I tell you what to do, you don't believe it. So he's calling him out. He's telling him specifically, you're not putting the pieces together. Now, we know that his real problem is not a lack of information. It's not a lack of revelation. He's just heard from God himself. He's heard things that Daniel, Moses, Noah, Isaiah never got to hear, specifically from the mouth of God. And he still can't put the pieces together. So it's not a lack of information. What's going on here? He's got a resistant heart. He's stiff-arming the information that he's hearing. He doesn't want to accept it. So Jesus has a clarification for him. He's going to give him some new information of God's nature, of what God is like, to help expand his mind a little bit before he lets him go. So remember, he can't even accept the basics. He's made this meaningless, shallow profession about Jesus being this great man of God. When it doesn't really apply to his heart, he's not transformed because of it. And so his premise of salvation is incorrect. His premise is, is that Jesus, this miracle worker, is going to come in and rescue Israel. And that the Israelites, the Jews, are justified because of their works. And Jesus has told him, your works amount to nothing. It's only through me you need to be born again. So the implication is this, church. This refusal to believe, which you see in Nicodemus right here, is resulting in blindness. He's refusing to accept the basics. And so his mind can't get beyond that to even recognize that Jesus has been sent from God. So Jesus is going to school him because he recognizes there's two sides to Nicodemus like many of us. There's the intellectual 
the Nicodemus who has achieved the position of Supreme Court Justice. He's the attorney who sits in the Sanhedrin. He's very religious, and Scripture calls him the teacher of Israel. So we got the intellectual side of Nicodemus. But we got this guy over here who's so proud and so full of his own works, believing that he can earn his way to the kingdom, that he stiff arms what he's hearing. And so that's why Jesus says, you're refusing what I'm telling you. You won't accept it. So Jesus is about to take the teacher of Israel to God's school of theology in the most basic terms. That's what's going on in John 13 through 16 and 17 and 18. So God's got a formula for those who are unbelievers, and that's what you're going to see here. He speaks very directly to him. Join me in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus starts with the basics, okay? You don't get it this way, Nicodemus? Get it this way. I'm the one who came from heaven. I have descended. No one has descended from heaven except the one who has ascended. It's me. I'm the only one, the Son of God. You and I are confined to time and space. We are time-limited, We're not eternal yet until we step into eternity. Every man will experience death. But Jesus has been to heaven. He dwelt in heaven. He created all this. So he's qualified to explain all this. So there's only one with the true knowledge of heaven. And he's the one who descended. That's why he said in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven. Or John 8.42, For I proceeded forth and have come forth from God. See, do you get it here, the basics? Jesus is laying it out for him. Okay, let's start at 101, Nicodemus. I am the one who have descended from God. Now next, he goes to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, for Nicodemus, this is extremely familiar. It may not be for you if you didn't grow up in church, but when Jesus is referring to this, he's taking him back to the Old Testament. What do Jews know at the first century? They know the Old Testament inside and out. It's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament. So they've got the Old Testament, and Nicodemus, who's a teacher of Israel, knows this story inside and out. So Jesus takes him again to the basics of Numbers chapter 21 and this story about Moses lifting up the serpent. Now, I don't want to assume that you know this story, so I'm going to explain it to you very briefly. You know probably from watching just television itself that Israel was freed from Egyptian bondage. They went out into the desert to get away from Pharaoh. They're free to go to the promised land, and they begin wandering through the desert because they disobey God. They're sinning in their actions. They're becoming rebellious in their heart. So God allowed them to just wander around until they could get their heart attitude right and their head attitude right. In the midst of their wanderings, God is their provider and gives them everything they need. But at some point, they turn and they become so bitter against God that they begin disclaiming everything that he's providing for them in the sense that they become complainers. Now, I want you to see this image on the screen because this artist captured this imagery pretty well about Moses lifting up this stick, this rod, this cross with a serpent on it. It'll make sense to you in just a minute because in this setting, 
Because they were complainers, God sent snakes into their midst. I'm going to read this to you. It's not going to appear on the screen, but just envision this in your mind as I describe it. Numbers 21.5. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. God had provided manna for them, food. And they're complaining they're not getting steaks. They want something better. So look at God's response. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede, meaning pray. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, interceded for them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if any serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So Jesus is taking Nicodemus to something very familiar to him because this is a story of grace. God providing salvation from people who were dying. So Nicodemus begins to put the pieces together. And this is a story of faith. Because Nicodemus is geared towards thinking, I can work my way in. The people of Israel only had to look to the cross and believe upon it in order to live. So do you see how basic Jesus is with him? This is why this is 101. So he's saying to him, the whole world has been bitten by sin. The whole world has a snake bite as a result of the Garden of Eden and the serpent that came in there. So as a result, every person needs to be born again, born from above. How does that happen? They need to look to the cross. So that's why Jesus said, even so must the Son be lifted up. He's speaking of the crucifixion. So let me read that to you again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Just like Israel needed to believe in God's redemption on the cross when the serpent was put up there. He's pointing him back to that, saying, I can help you put the pieces together. Helping him to understand this has to happen. Now, John 3.16, which is so familiar to us, expands on verses 14 and 15. It clarifies it. Now, notice the repetition. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. He said it in 14, 15, and now he's going to say it again in 16. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now imagine you're a Jew and you believe you're God's chosen race and that God will send a Messiah to redeem you and wipe out these nasty Romans. And all your life you've heard that you're God's chosen people. And this teacher from God just threw you a curveball. Here's another shock. God loves the whole world, Nicodemus. God so loved the world 
that my love extends to everyone. Now, in the mind of this first century attorney, this had to leave his mouth hanging open. God so loves the world that he gave his son. And this salvation, it flows like a river, Nicodemus. It's so abundant that whoever believes in me, my love is demonstrated towards them that while you're still sinners, I'm gonna die for you. That's what Romans 5.8 says. Look with me on the screen. God demonstrates his, own, his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's not waiting for us to become perfect. He died for us while we're still sinners. This is so vast and so wonderful and so incomprehensible that even Paul, when he tried to describe this, he used the word indescribable. Look with me on the screen. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How do you describe what we're learning about here? How do you put words to it? So I'm looking at the word indescribable and I'm thinking, yeah, there's gotta be a great definition for this in the Greek. So I'm looking up the word indescribable, you know what it means? Indescribable. It means literally what it says. As a matter of fact, look with me at the word up on the screen. Anekdigatos, indescribable, unspeakable. No words. There's no words to describe what God has done for you. So when you celebrate communion, we're just left with awe. We don't have enough words to put these pieces together. Because this love of our God just flows to us. This Father who gave His only begotten Son, which literally means unique, one of a kind. Only begotten means one of a kind, no one else like Him. And this one, He bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. This is the one He made a sacrifice for sinners. So you can see why this attorney standing in the presence of God would just have his mouth open. What do you do with this? You see, Jesus has taken him to the school of theology and he's showed him the supreme manifestation of God's love. It's so significant, so powerful that Jesus said, whoever just even believes in me will have eternal life. They'll not perish This is 101. This eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21. And there is no other one by which you have this salvation. You understand, church, why I'm saying there's a great danger in treating this mundane and taking it for granted? Because we've heard this over and over again. It's like walking in the room and flipping on the light switch. Well, what about when you walk in the room and hit the light switch and no lights go on? You realize you've taken that electricity for granted. You see this through these eyes of this first century attorney and you begin to realize this is overwhelming. This is so powerful. God himself is saying he's the only way. Jesus is the only savior, the one who descended from God. And he's explaining all this so that this guy can put these pieces together. This passage right here for me personally is one of the strongest arguments against universalism. You know what universalism is? It's the belief that there's no hell 
and that when Jesus died, and Scripture says He died for the world, meaning one time He wiped out all the sins for everybody who ever lived, and everybody's going to heaven regardless of what they believe. That's universalism. It rejects the teachings of Scripture. The teachings of Scripture say that there are those who will go to hell because they refuse Jesus Christ and they will perish. That's why Jesus used these words, that no one would perish if they believe in me. So as a result of this, those who come to Jesus, he gives this spectacular promise. And people begin to understand when they read this, verse 18 is just building on top of verse 17 and on top of verse 16. Look what your God says because he's just getting warmed up. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. You get that? You're not going to be judged. You're not facing death. Now truly, Jesus says in verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We understand there is a judgment coming in the future though. It didn't come the first time when Jesus arrived because he came to save. But if you go back and study with us the book of Revelation, you can find it on the website. The reason we spent a whole year in that, there is a judgment coming. But it's not now. Jesus came to save the world. So Jesus understands he's speaking to an attorney. Put this in the context of this guy who's got a legal mind. And Jesus says to him, people will not be judged if they believe in me. See the legal term used there? This guy's beginning to put the pieces together. So this spectacular promise we get in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, applies to you if you name the name of Christ. Now I want you to say this with me. I will not be judged because we need to have this ingrained in us. So on three, one, two, three. I will not be judged. Do it again. I will not be judged. That's powerful. You will not face death. You have eternal life. Jesus, the mouth of God himself, said this. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. The determination's already been made because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Is Jesus God? Yes. Did God say that if you believe in him, you will not be judged? Yes. Did God say, if you do not believe in him, you've already been judged? Yes. So in the most basic language, Jesus constructs this argument for this unbeliever to help him understand. This is so profound. Paul struggled for words to describe this, but he put it together in this magnificent proclamation. Look with me at Romans 8.1 on the screen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And skipping all the way down to verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? Church, if you get nothing else, catch this next part. This is so profound that the writer of Hebrews said, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How can we ignore this? 
So you would say, salvation from what? Because many around us today are saying, there's no hell. You don't have to worry. That's contrary to what Jesus said. What are you going to be saved from? You're going to be saved from hell, given life with God in heaven, if you believe on the name of Jesus Christ. God does not lie, and Jesus would not have said it if it were not true. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. So, Jesus understands that we've got this two-sided character, Nicodemus. So he states it to him both positively and negatively. If you believe in me, you're saved. If you don't believe in me, you're judged already. Nicodemus, we've got these two sides going on. We've got this balancing act. Why? Because Acts 4.12 says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we know all this in the church today, but we are so tempted to forget. So this is where Jesus ends it with him, and then he lets him go. Verse 19. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. If you don't believe that statement, just talk to some of the police officers who attend here at church. Ask them what the greatest preponderance of evidence is for when the most crime is committed. In the darkness. When men are not in the shape of the light and they can get away with evil. When the light shines, they don't want to be caught. So that's why Jesus went one step further. For everyone, verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why? Because it takes humility. It takes a humble heart to come to a God whom you've offended and committed sin all your life and surrender yourself and say, I give. I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. So the counterbalance again, Jesus plays the counterbalance back and forth. Verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought from God. So the opposite side is believers have nothing to fear, nothing to hide. So they're manifested in God. There's nothing to be afraid of. So Jesus, before he lets him go, we understand by reading between the lines that he's allowing him time to process this information. Now think with me. If Nicodemus, who is the teacher of Israel, the most religious man in Jerusalem, ascended to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court ruler, if he's not good enough to get into the kingdom of God, who is? He's enjoyed a life like no one else has known. He's got prestige. He's done all these works. He teaches other people about God. And Jesus has said, you've been judged already, man, because you don't believe. So if he's not good enough, who is? Those of us who recognize that we've been bitten by the snake. And because we've been bitten by the snake, we need to look to the cross, to the one who was lifted up and believing in him, we have life in him. That's what Jesus is explaining to him in 101 language. 
Put it together, Nicodemus. Here's the basics. Only I can give new life. Only I can give new hope. Now, I want you to recognize something, church, because there's a temptation on the part of Christians to tackle non-Christians and try and beat them up with this information. I don't see Jesus tackling Nicodemus at all. I don't think he chased him down in the parking lot and said, no, you can't get in your car and drive away. Repent. No. He's allowing him time to process this. And if you remember back at Easter when I taught about Nicodemus coming to the cross, we saw that eventually he came to the recognition that he needed a Savior. He's the one that took Jesus' body down off the cross and helped bury it. This was an individual who needed time to process this information. So I'm going to let you go now, but this is the way I'm going to close by asking you this question. How can you know for sure that you're really saved? Because the Bible answers that in one passage. I'm going to read it to you. You're going to see it on the screen. This is the definition. It comes from 1 John 2.3, and it helps us to understand God has some requirements. Look at the requirements. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked, meaning Jesus. See, the he is capital H. Walk like Jesus walked. Let's pray. Father, we've been hit in the face with some profound truth this morning. And I'm I'm afraid, God, that has become something that we've taken for granted. There's no other name by which we can be saved but the name Jesus. The one whom you gave to us, whom you've explained through Scripture, who explains you. So, Father, I ask as we leave this room this morning that you would remind us throughout this week ahead of what it means to walk with you, to follow your commandments, and to live like Christ followers. God, I thank you for salvation. Thank you for my salvation and for those in this room who name the name of Christ. Thank you that you redeemed us, that you love the world so much that you gave us Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Have an excellent week.